This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. New startup targets machine learning and trends in HPC software. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening into another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with our friends at top500.org. I'm Addison Snell with Intersect 360 Research, and while Michael Feldman, the Top 500 editor, is traveling, filling in for his seat, we've got Chris Willard, our chief research officer at Intersect 360 Research. Chris, thanks for sitting down with me. Well, thank you. Uh, always enjoy uh, talking with you on this show. And it's particularly timely since one of the things we're going to be talking about is a lot of our own new research that's now uh, out available to our clients with some of the trends in HPC software. But before we get to that, I wanted to touch on an article that Michael already published on top500.org about a new startup that's targeting the deep learning space specifically. There's a new chip maker called Wave Computing that's now uh, coming out of stealth mode. And Michael writes that they've got a family of computers that uh, is based on a Wave Data Flow Processing Unit, or DPU, which is a parallel data flow processor designed to optimize learning models that they claim is an order of magnitude faster than GPUs or FPGAs while also being more energy efficient for uh, these applications. They claim that it supports uh, certain machine learning frameworks such as uh, TensorFlow from Google and CNTK from Microsoft utilizing both DDR memory and hybrid memory cube or HMC which is uh, the 3D memory we've talked about from Micron. So a couple of interesting things here Chris, is that you know machine learning is something that obviously it's been a major topic. We're talking about it a lot with regards to hyperscale and its potential for HPC. But from a trend standpoint, we now need to talk about, one, is this a market that's large enough to support a custom startup that's going directly at this space? And then two, do you think they have the wherewithal to compete directly with uh, say, a, uh, a widely developed processor like an NVIDIA Tesla or an, NVIDIA, or, or an Intel uh, Xeon Phi or, or a custom in-house one like the, the Google Tensor processor. There's uh, really a lot of competition for this space. Let's talk about the, you know, the size of the market here, first of all. I think the important part of the, this announcement is not the specifics of the technology being announced. We'll have to wait and see how well this technology works and how, how quickly they can get it to market and how reliable it is. Uh, but rather, the important part is the market dynamics that it demonstrates. That what we are seeing, what we generally see with applications in the high-performance market is that they start out as very high-end supercomputing applications, then move into a more general-purpose uh, environment that they're used more in industry and by by mid-range organizations and then eventually workstation type products and then finally they just sort of disappear into the into the embedded world or the the general purpose processing world of uh, of it's available everywhere uh with deep learning we've seen this process move extraordinarily quickly right uh, and it seems like with this that we're ready to begin to move the, the process into the embedded world. Now, the important 
question really is, is the, is the market large enough at this time to, uh, to support an embedded type of processor? Yeah, that's exactly the concern that, that I have there is that, you know, you're, you're, you're saying here deep learning is this hot topic. And so we're going to come out with a, a custom, uh, essentially what's, what's amounts to a data or essentially what amounts to a machine learning appliance that I've got my machine learning application. I'm going to move it in here. Now, what we've seen from machine learning so far is that it's been part of the domain of the hyperscale market, not that hyperscale companies are running uh, machine learning across their entire infrastructure, but certainly they've got the wherewithal to do some very scalable work for machine learning types of applications. And when you talk about the machine learning uh, potential for specific target markets, like, for example, healthcare, I don't think that they're really envisioning every individual doctor's office now putting an appliance or a supercomputer into the doctor's office to do machine learning for that specific uh, patient. I think you're, you're really more looking at the design of a widget that plugs into a back-end cloud. So when Google or Microsoft or Baidu or, or whoever on the hyperscale side does the research there, their end game play is that the machine learning gets done on their cloud. I don't know how much of a market there is for an in-house machine learning uh, uh, appliance, maybe in the finance side, we're seeing some finance getting done for pricing applications. But out of all the high performance applications we've ever seen, uh, the, the one that's got the most affinity to cloud has, has been on the machine learning side. Yeah, that's true. The, I mean, there's a couple of interesting issues here. One is, is that the Machine learning part can be broken down into a training side and then a, an activation or recognition side. Training is the computationally intensive part. You know, how do you recognize language? How do you program a computer to, to be able to pick out words from a, uh, an audio stream? But then once you have done that and figured it out, the computational requirements for doing that on a on a regular basis aren't that great. That, that's the reason that products like series work. Um, so that now we say we have two possibilities market-wise. Either the hyperscale people have enough to learn that they will be able to create a market inside that two dozen big companies to pull in all of these uh, special processors and use those and sort of uh, uh, go to a, a higher volume, lower cost model than than is available through uh, more general purpose products. Or we will begin to see the training begin to move down product into more self-training devices. And here we're just really getting to the point of imagination. Do you need systems in your house or in your car or things like that, that will train based on the specific situation you're in? Uh, or is this something where all of the training can be done in the cloud and really in a non-interactive sense or, or away from the end-user environment? Good news, bad news. Uh, bad news is, is that the cloud seems to be running right now and doing a good job of, of doing that training. Uh, good news is is that when you have technologies like this that sort of 
open up new possibilities that we may end up finding new applications in more of an embedded environment. Yeah, uh, I think that's, ex that's exactly how I would uh, evaluate this, is if they really do have a chip that's going to be better than uh, a Knight's Landing or better than a Tesla for deep learning kinds of applications, then they should be able to sell that directly to hyperscale companies, both in the, in the first and in the second tier, uh, who have these deep learning applications, but that that can be served out in the cloud. The market for a separate deep learning appliance that's bought by uh, an end user, I, I'm more dubious about. We haven't seen that proven yet in the market. Uh, no, we haven't, but we haven't had the products. Maybe maybe this product will be targeted uh, towards those sorts of applications. Uh, exactly. Or Okay. Uh, or at least heralds heralds the ability to uh, to put deep learning inside smaller smaller boxes. Well, and that, and that's a good point. So we'll continue to to watch the deep learning space, particularly as part of our hyperscale service for our clients. It it is a, a very interesting potential market, but it's not clear yet exactly how it'll be delivered. Now, as we keep looking at trends in. Uh, software in particular, Chris, we've got a bunch of new research reports that have now gone out to our uh, clients, one on uh, life cycle of HPC systems, but then on the software side, looking at both end-user application software and also at the middleware in the HPC space. These have been very dynamic trends that we uh, continue to watch in the HPC space, starting with uh, the application side for a second. I think that's where um, the uh, a lot of the, the biggest changes are being made, but we've got a, a very detailed report based on our site census survey. This is actually still based on uh, uh, the survey that, that ran last year. We're still writing reports on it. We're doing more data gathering this year. There's annual surveys that we run here, but we're now up to um, uh, nearly 800 unique packages made named across over 2,000 individual mentions uh, uh, across uh, multiple sites. Um, about a third of them are, uh, or nearly a third, are high-performance business computing applications. The rest are what we call high-performance technical computing applications. So we get a lot of insights on both sides, and they're revealing some interesting trends. Well, that's true. That um, Some of the things that jumped out at me are uh, first the number of chemistry and biosciences mentions that between chemistry uh, and bioscience we're looking at, at between 35 and 40 percent of the total applications mentioned and I think that is uh, probably an indication of where research is going right now and where research dollars are going uh, in uh, uh, into the medical, into material sciences, uh, into genomics analysis at all levels, uh, and uh, and and so we're seeing a lot of strength there, and uh, I think that's probably an indication of a of, of a deeper trend in in the scientific world. Uh, the other one that I always like looking at is the is the distribution of of open source uh, versus ISV and in-house applications by uh, uh, economic sector. And if we break it down just into the public versus private sectors, we find that almost mirror images of the use of different types of software. That in the, in the public sector, 
close to 60% of the mentions were for open source software. Uh, and in the 15 to 20% were in the ISV realm, uh, with the rest being in-house. Uh, in the uh, private sector, in commercial computing, that the number is just about reversed, that uh, uh, nearly 55, over 55% of the of the packages are ISVs for your commercial users, and uh, only about twenty percent come into uh, open source. Interestingly enough, that the in-house number probably averages out to be about the same across the board. Yeah, and when, uh, you, when you get down to the the individual uh, application types, and 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 as you were saying, the sectors, that's where you really see some of these very strong trends. One of the trends that we've been talking about is a general migration of increasing amounts of open source across the, the entire space. And that has been happening, although it's it's slowed down a little bit. Open Foam, which is one of the, the, the products we've been tracking the most, is still the, the number two most cited uh, computational fluid dynamics packages behind uh, Fluent from Ansys, although it's it's again tapering off a little bit there. Uh, Fluent is showing resiliency in terms of how many people are dedicated to it, and it, you can see pockets where open source really has not taken hold. If you go to the other side of the engineering realm and look at uh, structures, structural analysis, the top packages there are all ISV applications, uh, Abacus from, uh, uh, from uh, Dassault and uh, LSDyna, Ansys, Nastran from, MS, from MSC, Comsol, um, Ansys Mechanical, a couple from Altair, Hyperworks, Radios. These are all ISV applications, and we're not really seeing open source take a great deal of hold. And then on the uh, high-performance business computing side, where you get predominantly commercial uh, usage, that's where we see very little open source, but there's an awful lot of in-house balancing out uh, the, the ISV space. The, the, top, um, the top group of applications around business intelligence uh, is, uh, is driven predominantly by in-house, which are all one-offs. Um, the economic and financial packages are still dominantly in-house. Complex event processing is still dominantly in-house. Digital content creation is still predominantly in-house. So there's all of these uh, in-house applications that are all one-offs. Ninety percent of the overall application mentions that we had for high-performance business computing we're all one-off mentions, and, and that's uh, you know really driven by how much in-house development that is. Uh, it, it, for well, for, for high-performance business computing, it's more important to give them a strong development environment than it is to target ISVs. That is a, an interesting aspect of, of high-performance com, high computing in that it, it is a, a competitive driver for, for companies, as we like to point out. And in the business world, it doesn't really help to be – to have your your competitive edge being the same software that anyone else in the market can buy. So I think even more than on the technical side, that that the need for specialized, unique, uh, value-added software at the in-house level is is much higher on the on the business side than it is in the uh, in the engineering side. 
Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And these are, are trends that we're going to continue to watch here. Let's, uh, people can refer to our, our full report for, for more details on that, either uh, through our, our subscriptions or our HBC 500 user group, or you can just buy the uh, report individually. Any of these reports can be bought for uh, $500. Uh, so that's a nice little plug for our own research. Let's tip over to the middleware side for a second here. We've got, again, over a 1,000 mentions of different middleware packages here, and about 40% of those break down to different types of management software, job management, system management, a little bit of storage management, and then most of the rest, about 57%, has to do with development, whether it's programming environments or, or compilers. Any interesting data that jumps out at you from uh, from this report, Chris? Over on the middleware side, uh, again, uh, over a thousand different primary middleware packages in the survey from over 300 different HPC sites, and, and a lot of interesting trends here to look at again with regards to open source versus in-house versus ISV. Yes. Um a lot of information. Again, it's a very long-tailed uh, distribution with a, with a few major players and, and a lot of individual packages. The, in the overall middleware category, the, the pretty much the product, general product areas break down into management software for systems, uh, job, man, <laughs> job management, and, uh, and storage management. And then the rest of the, that's about 40%. And then the lion's share is in programming environments and compilers. Uh, report we're talking about is that first 40% with the, uh, with the management software. And there we see some different trends. If you look at job management, uh, open source is about 53%, but almost uh, the same number, 43%, uh, is in ISV software. Uh, only about 4% want to do job management in-house. Uh, pretty well understood problem, although very complex. And the real issue here is is what level of support you're looking for. If you want uh, uh, a strong support contract and training uh, and a, a good idea of what the uh, uh, roadmap's going to be, then, then, then moving to ISV is probably the best bet. If you're looking for a price break and interest in doing a little programming on your own, then the open source world is, is a good way to go. In the system management category, uh, the numbers swing around a good deal. About two-thirds of the software is open source there, and ISVs being 20% and a little bit more, I'm sorry, 25% ISV and a little bit more 9-10% in the in-house category. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to see how these break down differently by the different categories. You're talking about these system management uh, areas, and that's where you do see the dominance of open source, Ganglia, Rocks, XCAT, Nagios. Then Cluster Manager from Bright Computing winds up being the top uh, ISV uh, that, that shows up in that space. But if you're over on the job management side, um, places like adaptive computing and, and Altair, even I, uh, IBM, start showing up with uh, with some uh, some real uh, market share. Torque is the number one most cited application, but closely followed by PBS or PBS Pro, Moab, Slurm, 
grid engine and then uh, as you say it, it gets into a very long tail for for me that i think the most interesting thing that comes out of this is on the storage management side where ibm shows up very well with gpfs uh showing up with as many in fact just slightly more mentions overall than luster and of course gpfs they're all coming from ibm uh, luster winds up being spread out in terms of where it's coming from. About half of the overall mentions wind up just being from open source, uh, but then a lot of people saying they get it from Intel, DDN after that, and then uh, uh, kind of, a, again, a spread out of, of suppliers uh, who, who might have included uh, Luster as part of their storage uh, installation uh, when you bought your, your commercial storage from someone. But really, IBM, and not even just with GPFS, things like Tivoli, uh, in the uh, in the survey, IBM shows up very well. It's an area of real strength for them on the data management side. And then one final uh, report coming out from us on uh, life cycles in HPC. This isn't really on the storage side, but it's something we keep our eye on from time to time in terms of how long HPC systems stay in use before they get upgraded or replaced. This is a sort of report I like to do uh, periodically. We, we look at this number every year, or this set of numbers, uh, and it's important to, uh, to market research and strategic planning to know just how long you should expect your product to be in the field and how fast it's going to turn over. Uh, the numbers have been fairly constant over the years that systems tend to last about uh, three years, three to four years, and then they uh, the distributions pretty much drop off a cliff after that. Uh, what we do seem to be seeing is a uh, is a trend uh, towards more upgrades. About seventy eight percent of the the systems we looked at were upgraded during their life. Right, and part of the finding is that more than a third of those systems, thirty five percent, we found they were actually upgraded in the first year of ownership. So I think that is has been an interesting trend, and I think that's related to a lot of the architectural diversity that we've seen with people wanting to bring in different kinds of processors or, or different different processing elements. Also, uh, we see this going on with uh, with storage, with the, 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 uh, the different storage technologies in play. It's really become a very specialized environment for HPC right now, and people are trying to uh, tune their systems to their particular applications while still protecting the investments with technologies that they've already uh, sunk costs into. And it uh, wouldn't surprise me if we continue to see that trend uh, extending in our future surveys. So three interesting reports all coming out from Intersect 360 Research right now on primary applications, on uh, on the management software, on the middleware side, on the, the life cycle of systems. So Chris, thanks for joining me this week. Pleasure as always. And thanks to you for listening in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.